It's in the book of Acts, is in chapter 20. Acts 20, Paul is saying goodbye to the pastors in the church in Ephesus. And he spent quite a bit of time with them. They've worked through some rough church things. They've grown very, very close. And, And in the farewell, he tells them that he is going to go to Rome where he will die. And he will never see them again. I mean, you can imagine the, the emotional content right there. But, but his final message to them is actually not sentimental. It's a warning. If you look at Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Man, they've gone through some really hard stuff together, Paul says. You know, we've, we've, we've dealt with issues and we've been in tears as we've gone through these things. And now I'm leaving, but i got to tell you, it's not going to get e- easier. Fierce wolves are going to come in and they're going to try to devour you. And from amongst your own people, there'll be some scripture-twisting people who are going to try to lead you astray. False teachers are going to steal and devour followers of Jesus with their, with their lies. You see, the truth is this, that, that wherever the gospel takes hold, a false gospel attack will follow. It's just always been true. When the gospel takes hold, the enemy sends liars. And he attacks with a false gospel. Um, now, let me just be clear what I mean by a false gospel. And the best way to do that, to be clear about that, is to make sure we understand the true gospel. The true gospel is the good news that God has sent his son to suffer the penalty we deserve for our sin and to be righteous in our place so that we can be forgiven and we can stand right before a holy God. The true gospel is the good news that God has done something to help us deal with our rebellious hearts and the bad news that we deserve eternal suffering. Now, once you understand that is the true gospel, and remember, gospel means good news. That's the true good news. You can understand what a false gospel is. A false gospel is something that comes and says something else is the good news. That's what a false gospel is. It's the declaration of good news to people who are in a bad news situation where the good news that's offered won't really do any good. It's a false good news. It's not really good news. A false gospel is a lie about how to be right with God. And the big problem then with the false gospel is pretty obvious, isn't it? A false gospel leaves you in the bad news situation where it finds you. It tells you there's hope, 
when there is no hope. It offers you a solution that doesn't solve anything. And in the case of your sin, it leaves you under judgment. Well, that's the kind of thing that was happening long ago in Israel. Israel had been given the word of God, right? They'd been given the word of God in many, many forms. They had the law of God that they received directly from God through Moses. They had an inspired record of the works of God. They had divinely inspired songbook. They had the Psalms. They had the wisdom of God that was written down in, in books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They, they had the thus saith the Lord from the prophets. Israel had the word of God. As a matter of fact, Israel had also experienced the grace of God. They'd experienced the grace of God. They'd been delivered from Egypt via, via the plagues and the parting of the sea. They crossed the sea on dry ground at, at Sinai. God had not destroyed them as they came near. I mean, right? If you come near that holy ground, boof, it's gone because they're not holy. And, and, and then God, God came and he dwelled with them, right? The, the cloud and the fire and, and the tabernacle, he showed them his grace and he defeated, he defeated their enemies, I love the first part of the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's like, and God defeated this, or God defeated this group, God defeated this group. He goes, it's like he's saying, I'm showing you grace, I'm showing you grace, I'm showing you grace. So let me tell you how to live in the land that I'm about to give you because you know I'm a gracious God. So they had the word of God and they'd experienced the grace of God, but Israel sinned and fell short of the glory of God. So they stood under the judgment of God. But as we're going to see in Amos, starting at chapter 5, verse 18, even though Israel was under God's judgment, God was good to her. God came in and brought discipline, right? We saw that last week. Over and over, God brought discipline, but Israel did not repent. And what we're getting to this week is, why didn't Israel repent? Why, why did Israel not turn away from her rebellion and turn to God, the God who had spoken his word to them and showed them over and over what a gracious God. Why didn't they do that? And the answer is, Israel had believed a false good news. Israel had believed a false gospel. Now I'm going to ask if you're able to you stand in honor of God's word one more time here this morning. As I read from Amos 5, starting at verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, 
and Cayune, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile." And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver the city, deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say, no. And he shall say, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in lo debar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Father, this is your word. We, we ask that you would use it. Lord, write it on our minds and hearts and help us to believe. Help us to trust you and to follow your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And just to let you guys in the back know, I turned on my microphone. Some days. Israel had believed false good news. Under God's judgment for her sin, Israel did not repent because she believed three terrible lies, three false gospels, each of which, and this is a big deal, each of which continues to plague the church today. Each of these false gospels that Israel bought is being sold today. First, we see this. First, we see that Israel believed the false gospel of ritual. The false gospel of ritual. False gospel of ritual says you can be made right with God by practicing the right ritual. By getting your to-do list of religion right, you can be okay with God. The religion of the people of Israel, both in the form God gave them 
and in the form that that northern kingdom had made up. Remember when the kingdom split, the northern kingdom made their own. The religion of Israel was a forward-looking religion. It was forward-looking. There was a promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through their line, one day all the nations of the earth would be blessed, looking forward. There was a promise made to David that one day a king from his line would rule in righteousness and peace over the people of God forever. That's very forward-looking. And they looked forward to the day when all that would really come together, and they called that day the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And so in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 5, what we see is that, that they think the day of the Lord is the day of awesome goodness. Right? Everything gets peachy on the day of the Lord. They thought it was just joy. That's the day when God will send a Messiah. He'll come as the conquering Savior, King, deliver us and rule over us in peace and prosperity. It'll be awesome forever. In other words, the special day of the Lord, God will make all the promised blessings a reality for His chosen people, Israel. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, woo, come on, day of the Lord. So in their, their religious ceremonies, they'd get together, they'd talk about the day of the Lord. And then along comes Amos with a message that's echoed in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, and Joel. And Amos says, because of your sin, the day of the Lord may be a day of deliverance and light for somebody, but it's not going to be a day of deliverance and light for you. For you, it will be judgment and darkness. It will be darkness for Israel. Now, think about it. Why did Israel think it would be a day of light for them? Were they, were they thinking, we just trust in the Almighty God. He is good. We have faith in His promises. That wasn't why they trusted. That's not what Amos says. He says the reason they thought it was going to be a good day for them is because they were keeping up all the rituals. They were doing all the stuff. But then in verses 21 to 24, God says, I hate your rituals. I hate what you're doing. Enough of your solemn assemblies. Enough of the burnt offerings. Enough of the grain offerings. Enough with the peace offerings. Enough of the choir specials and the harp solos. I'm tired of it all. He tells Israel, shut down your worship services. You think that's what makes you right with me. Quit it. Just quit it. Instead of that, what I want to see, God says, I want to see justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I want you to be my people. Quit playing when you get together with all the bells and whistles and start really being my people. God wants them to live the life he designed for them, a life where justice covers the land like water and where righteousness keeps coming and never ends. And God even asks in verse 25, essentially saying, back when you were in the wilderness, when the law came to you, did I just say all I want from you is rituals? Was that all you did was make sacrifices while you were in the wilderness? And the answer is no. 
what I gave you was a law that called for justice and it called for righteousness, not just sacrifices. And you've ignored justice and righteousness and you thought the sacrifices would be enough. And God says, I'll say what is enough, enough with your rituals. So what he's going to do, if you look there in verse 26 or 27, he's going to take them into exile beyond Damascus. They're going to be hauled off by the Assyrians. They're going to be taken away from the very places where they would gather for their rituals. You're going to be taken a long way from home and a long way for where you've pretended to be the people of God. Israel believed a false gospel of ritual. A, a, a false gospel that says you can be right with God if you do all the right religious stuff and you check all the boxes. But as Israel learned, a gospel of ritual writes a check it cannot cover. And it still can't. You can attend Sunday school every week and not be right with God. You can show up and take the Lord's Supper every month and not be right with God. You can get baptized and not be right with God. You can take copious sermon notes and go home and actually read them again and not be right with God. You can go on every mission trip the church advertises and not be right with God. You can listen to Christian music on the car you drive with the fish on the bumper and not be right with God. You could read your Bible three times a day and not be right with God. You can give 10% of your income every week and then big buckets of money every time there's a need and not be right with God. Now, let me just be straight. All of those things are good things to do. Every one of them, just like Israel was supposed to make sacrifices. They're all good things, but they will not make you right with God. They are good things when someone who is right with God, whose heart has been changed by God, who loves righteousness and loves justice, when that person does those things, those are good things. But it's only when someone is right with God that those things are good things. You see, the, the, the good religious practices can never wash away your sins. In the guilt you have. Only the finished work of Jesus Christ can deal with your sin problem. And only then do all those things become good things. There's only one good news. And it is not a ritual-filled religion. Israel believed the false gospel of ritual. And Israel believed the false gospel of affluence, of affluence. They believed the false gospel of affluence, which says you can be right with God and you must be. You must be right with God if God is making you rich, right? If you've got wealth, that must be evident that you're okay with God because God wants his people to be wealthy. That's what God wants. So as we move to chapter 6, we see the, the false gospel of ritual is not the only one they believed. They believed this, this, this money gospel. They believed they must be right with God because they're living their best life now, is what they believed. And to this, God says, woe to you. Woe to you. It is never good if God says woe to you. 
Remember last week we talked about the word alas? How it's a word that, that means sorrow and hopelessness, like Hamlet's evaluation of poor Yorick's skull. It's, it's the hopelessness word. Woe is alas's first cousin. Woe is bad. When, when God has the prophet pronounce woe on someone, what the prophet is saying is the party is over. It's kind of like saying woe to the horse of good life. Right? Hope is gone. And here God promises woe on a very comfortable people. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Boy, there's been a lot of good sermons preached on that a long time ago. Um, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Israel is comfortable. They think we're good with God. We can put it on cruise control. And God says, woe. To them in their comfort. God's woe is his promise that their comfort is coming to an end. And he says, woe to those who feel secure on the mountain in Samaria. Israel feels like she's got security. She feels like because she is that right people, she's wealthy and she's got security, everything must be right with God. And God says, woe to you and your security. I'm going to take your security away from you. Comfort and your security. And he also says, woe to the people who are powerful and prosperous. He says, woe to the notable men of the first of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Israel's sitting pretty. It's the economy, stupid, right? I mean, it's, it's, she's got money. She's like a superpower. Everything seems to be great. And God says, woe to you in your power and your prosperity. Because I'm going to bring that to an end. You see, they thought that their relationship to God was all about becoming wealthy and prosperous and comfortable and secure. And God said, I'm just going to take all that away from you so you can see that you were wrong. And in verse 2, he even says, I tell you what, why don't you go check out the pagan nations? Check out all those pagan nations surrounding you. And let me ask, let me ask you this question. Who's better off? Who's better off? Are you better than those kingdoms or is their territory greater than your territory? And what he's saying is, look, the pagan nations believe that nonsense. Pagan people believe that if the economy's right and you've got security and you've got prosperity, they believe that if all that is right, you must be cool with, with your God, Right? And let me ask, are they doing better than you? I mean, are they the people of God? Is that what you think? Because that's what they believe too. And the answer is no. Then in verse 3, God summarizes the foolishness of Israel. They, they've put far away the day of disaster, but in reality, they've brought near the seed of violence. They have thought, they have thought that by, by bringing peace to the land... Everything was okay, but in reality, by putting their faith in peace and prosperity in the land, they've really brought the day of violence upon them from God. And in verse 4, he pronounces another woe. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. Israel pursues comfort in the lap of luxury. I must be in good shape with God. I've got an ivory couch. Right, I mean, I'm guessing there's cushions on it. I mean, right? Right? They, they, they're stretched out on the couches. And, and it even says, look, 
You even have faith in your diet. You're eating lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the soul. You've got the best of food, so things must be right with God. And it shows up in their devotion to entertainment and recreation, right? They sing idol songs to the sounds of the harp. And like David, invent, invent instruments of music. And what it is, they're committing themselves to art and music for the sake of art and music and not, nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with God. And it shows up in their drunkenness. They don't have a cup of wine, they have a bowl. Right? It shows up in their decadence. They're anointing themselves with the finest of oils. They smell good. And it shows up in their lack of concern for anything that really matters. You're into all these things. Entertainment, decadence, wealth, the finest foods. You're into all those things. But you don't care that your nation is in ruins. You don't care that your nation has no relationship with her God. And God's word to them is, is, as they wallow in their wealth, is woe. Disaster is coming. Verse 7, therefore they shall now be the first of those to go into exile. And, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. All you people living the, the, the big life, the good life, thinking that this is your, your relationship with God, I'm just going to take it all away. You're going to be the first into exile. They made a religion out of wealth and prosperity, luxury and security, and this false gospel has failed them too. They believed the false gospel of affluence. That wealth means you're all right with God. Friends, that false gospel did not die out with the change of the covenants. It may be in its strongest form ever today. But even, even in, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote of people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. I mean, that sounds bad, right? Depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 5, he wrote this. He said, he said that, that they are depraved of mind, deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul says it's not true. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So to those who think, well, what God wants for us is wealth and security and comfort and luxury, Paul says, pursuing those things will lead you to hell. It is the root of all kinds of evil. The pursuit of those things is wrong. The gospel is where, is where God, the real good news, is where God saves us and changes us and makes us content with whatever he gives us. Gives us hearts of contentment. We don't pursue wealth, we pursue godliness. You know why? Because there is a wonderful, eternal life promised to the people of God, and you will take godliness with you, the wealth you will leave behind for whoever gets it. Right? It'll be someone else's as soon as you die. And Paul says the pursuit of wealth leads to all kinds of other sins. It, 
It misshapes your desires. It ruins people. It destroys family. And it draws people from faith in God to faith in cash. So here's the deal. When the preacher on TV tells you that God wants you to be wealthy, turn off your TV or at least change the channel. Just don't, don't waste your time. When you see on social media a post that says God will make you rich if you like and share this post, for heaven's sakes. If it's a brother or sister of Christ, reach out to them. They need to hear that something is wrong in that. Block them from your feet. Do something. That is so horrible. The false prosperity gospel is not something to toy with. It destroys. Just ask the wealthy folks in Israel who were, in fact, the first ones to go into captivity. God's judgment was not an idle judgment. Israel believed the false gospels of ritual and affluence, and Israel believed the false gospel of security. They believed the false gospel of security. We already touched on this a little bit, but the false gospel of security says that you don't need God once you're able to keep yourself safe from your enemies. If you are safe, you must be right with God. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be safe. Israel doesn't have faith in God anymore. Israel has faith in her walls and her armies. She feels secure. But God has taken an oath. God has taken an oath to teach them that they've placed their faith where it doesn't belong again. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the God of hosts. God has said by himself. That means if he lies, he is not good. Here's what he said. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that's in it. How bad will it be? Watch verses 9 and 10. It's going to be so bad that if there's 10 men in the house, they're going to all be dead. And when the relative who comes in, who's going to anoint them for burial, is taking bones out of the house, someone will say, is anybody left in the house? And the answer is no. They're just going to be completely taken up. Most people will be dead, and those who are not will be terrified. In fact, they're going to be so scared, and they're going to know that it's the judgment of God, so much so that when they talk to each other, they're going to say, look, just don't speak the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, we don't want to hear the name of the Lord. That's why there's 10 dead people in this house. Because the Lord has been a judge. And it won't matter if you're the rich man or the poor man in Israel either. The man in the big house or the man in the little house. That's verse 11. And the land's going to become a desolate place of nothing but rocks. Horses don't run on rocks. You don't plow on rocks with oxen. And that's all you're going to have is a big pile of rubble and rocks. And then God turns once more to their sin. And again, it is injustice and unrighteousness. And faith in their own strength. They trust in their might to bring them security. Second part of verse 12, you have turned justice to poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Wormwood is a, is a bitter thing. You who rejoice in, in, in Lodibar say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? They believe that they have done it. They, they believe that they are strong, that they have accomplished it. Aren't we something? And God's going to prove them wrong. 
Verse 14, he's going to raise up a nation. And they're going to oppress them from one end of Israel to the next. They made a religion out of their military security, and God says to them, enough. Enough. You're going to be done. I'm going to show you that you never were secure. I'm going to raise up an army nation to come take you over. False gospel of security says you don't need God if you're safe. Well, how easy would it be for us as American Christians to play church while we are actually people trusting in our national strength? I mean, we're a superpower, right? We've got it all. It's safe. It's secure. We can go where we want, do what we want. No, I mean... How many of you are worried about being drug off by a foreign army this afternoon? Right? You've got security. Everything's good. How easy is it to make the transition from being satisfied with God and thankful for the gift of security to being satisfied with national might and forgetting God? It's quite easy. It is quite easy, and it's why churches across the land seem to take down the cross and put up the flag way too often. It's a big problem when religion is faith in a nation. As a matter of fact, it's many problems. If your faith is in your nation, know this, nations come and go. There were many world superpowers before the United States of America. And it might be evidence that you have faith in your nation if you believe we will be the last one. Second, Christianity is not a national religion. Our God is not a national God. It's a global religion. The mission of the church is to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation fulfilling Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9. It would seem a bit antithetical to our mission, would it not, to think that national pride would be part of our Christianity? And third, nations often turn against the church that stays faithful to the gospel. It's a very bad day when your false God decides that it hates you because you love the true God. That day may well be upon us soon. So brethren, let's make sure that we understand that our relationship with the Almighty is not dependent on our relationship with the United States of America. Now, let's be very good citizens in the land of our sojourn. And let's try to make it America the beautiful. Let's try to do that. With, with, with all the power that we have, right? But let's remember this world is not our home. We have a better citizenship. And our faith is not in this nation, but our faith is in the Almighty God who raises up kings and brings down kings. Israel believed three false gospels, and we dare not follow their example. They fell prey to the false gospels of ritual, affluence, and security. Now, there's little doubt that we might be tempted to fall prey to those same false gospels. They're certainly out there, aren't they? 
I mean, there's, there's really nothing new under the sun, apparently. Solomon in that book of Ecclesiastes that I mentioned earlier is right about that. But how can we keep from that? How, how do we protect ourselves? How do we keep from getting sucked in by these lies? Well, I'm going to offer you some suggestions. The first one is, wear it out. Study the Bible. Study the Bible. Study the truth. This is where the true good news is found. The New Testament digs deep into the good news about the saving person and work of Jesus Christ. You will not wear out your Bible in your lifetime. You will not get done. You will not get done. I, I, have, I have spent so much of my life going to school. And, and half of that going to school was, was to learn more about understanding my God. You know what? Don't let, don't let the seminary hear this. I, I, I don't know enough to be called doctor anything. I open this book like you do, and I am amazed at what I find in here today. Stay in it. Stay in it. Stay so deep into the truth that you will not wade out into the waters of the lie. Stay in it and study it. Don't, don't just read it or read one verse and then read what some guy wrote about that verse and, and think that you've somehow studied the Bible. Dig deep into it. Read it and, and ask yourself, what, what does that say? How does that fit the big story of the Bible? And, and if you don't have an answer, get help. Dig deep and study the Word. Second of all, share the good news with other people. If you are out there telling everyone else this is the good news, you're a whole lot less likely to believe a false good news. If you make it your mission to spread the true good news, you have made enemies of those who are spreading the false good news. You have said, I am on this team. So get out there and share the good news. Be on the right mission. Now, if you're staying at ease in Zion, on your couches of ivory, then it's going to be tempted since you're not on that mission to get sucked into the people who are on this mission. If you're not out there sharing the real good news, if you're just sitting back, the folks with the false good news know where to find you. So get out there and share the gospel. And also, watch your diet. Watch your diet. The world is selling the false gospel. And some of it under the guise of Christianity. Don't take it in. Be discerning. If it smells like a lie, go ahead and treat it like one. You've got the truth. You know where the truth is. You don't have to dabble on the edges where the lies live. You can just stay knee-deep in the truth. And if it sounds like a false gospel, don't take it in. If you feed yourself the lie enough, you'll believe the lie. And finally, keep good company. Hang out with people who believe the true good news. Gather with the saints. You know, if you're with people who believe the same good news 
the, the true good news, you're going to build each other up in the true good news. If you hang out with people who believe the false good news, eventually you're going to want to fit in. And eventually you'll start believing it. Because they're the people you want to be with, right? If the people I want to be with believe this, it must be true. Don't do it. Hang out with the right people. Keep good company. So, so study the true gospel. Get on mission proclaiming the good news. Watch your diet. Don't take in the lie. And keep good company. And if you do that, I think we can stay away from the woes. And that last one that I suggested, keep good company, it's the church. We're in this together. We are in this together. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and saved sinners from the penalty they deserve because of their sin, what he could have done was say, okay, good luck, guys. You're each on your own. Right? But he didn't. He, he brought together disciples, and he told those disciples to make disciples, and he started talking about this thing called his church. His church, which is the word ecclesia, which means a gathering. So from the very beginning, Christ died for a church. He died so that he could bring us Together. We're in this together. I think it's time we leaned harder on one another. We're not just here on Sunday morning, dressed our best, and then go our way Monday through Saturday, folks. I mean, if that's who we are, I worry that we're swimming in the ritual pond. But the church helps one another be the church and avoid the lies of the false gospel all the time. So take advantage of what God has given you, the church. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word through the prophet Amos. God, it, it, it is hard to hear such a word of judgment again and again. It is hard to, to hear about a people who, who were absorbed in lies and suffered for it. But God, it would be much worse to be those people. So my prayer this morning is that you would guard us from the lies. Protect us. Give us, give us hearts that are passionate about the true gospel. Keep our minds from ever considering the lies, these false gospels. Help us to be faithful, to be, be on mission, proclaimers of the true good news in this lost and dying world. Help us to be the church, building one up, each other up in this true gospel. Lord, I do pray for, for any who is here this morning who has believed the lie and hasn't placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope. Lord, I pray that today they would believe and be saved. 
I, I pray that you would make it clear to them that they are a sinner and that they deserve punishment from you. But Lord, I, I pray at the same time that you would make it just as clear to them that Jesus came and died for sinners. I pray that you would grant them the gift that they would believe in Jesus, that they would trust that Jesus is their Savior and that they would be saved. And I pray for your church. Guard us from false gospels. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.